Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guest today is Jared Elias, professor of law at Harvard Law School. We'll be discussing his article, The Rise of Bankruptcy Directors, which is forthcoming in the Southern California Law Review. He co-authored the article with Ehud Kamar and Kobe Castile, professors of law at Tel Aviv University. I'll add a link to the article in the show notes for the episode. Jared, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here, Andrew. Jared, I want to start with kind of big and basic question that I think will set some of the tone and foundation for the rest of this conversation. What is the responsibility of a corporate board of directors? And when a company enters bankruptcy proceedings, how does the responsibility of the board or individual members of the board, how does that responsibility shift? The board of directors is normally the entity that corporate law asks to oversee a large company on behalf of its shareholders and to make the big decisions on behalf of the company. And some of those decisions are the basic things like hiring the CEO. Others can include more complicated things like, should this company be sold to Elon Musk or something like that? And so generally, corporate law asks the board of directors to maximize the value of the firm for the benefit of its shareholders. There are different formulations of that, but that's typically the way that we think of corporate law treating boards of directors. When a firm starts to fall into what we would call insolvency, right? Meaning that the board of directors looks around and they're not sure they're going to be able to keep the promises that they made to their creditors. The board's responsibilities can change somewhat. I have a wonderful guest speaker who's been to my class at, I used to teach at UC Hastings a number of times, a gentleman named Toby Keller, who's an attorney, great bankruptcy lawyer in San Francisco. And he told me that when boards of directors look around and they say, are we insolvent? Are we going to have trouble keeping the promises we made to our creditors? Generally, if you ask that question, the answer is yes. You're only asking that question if you're in trouble. So when that happens, the law changes somewhat. And in Delaware, the current rule is that the board of directors can take into account the interests of creditors and they can choose to do something more conservative if they think that that course of action is the right course of action for preserving value and maximizing the value of the firm as a whole. Even if they don't think that it will benefit shareholders at all, they think all the value is going to go to creditors. So an example could be a company that borrowed $100 from a bank. They don't think they're going to be able to pay the bank back in full. And so the board meets and they say, OK, let's abandon our aggressive business plan and let's do something more conservative to try to give the bank as much as we possibly can, even though we won't be able to pay shareholders at all. So traditionally, a lot of corporate law's interest in boards of directors and insolvency has to do with whether or not fiduciary duties should shift when a firm becomes insolvent. And the current state of Delaware law is that fiduciary duties don't shift. Instead, they're broadened to some extent. The board is able to do more conservative things consistent with its fiduciary duty, as well as more aggressive things, so long as it satisfies the presumptions of the business judgment rule. The world of bankruptcy directors, which is the topic of the paper that we're looking at, what Kobe Hood and I see is something new is going on in the way the boards of directors are approaching financial distress, which is they're adding bankruptcy experts to the board when they run into financial trouble. 
and then asking those bankruptcy experts to steer a path for the company through a financial restructuring. And there are many things that make these bankruptcy experts notable, and we can talk about them. But the main thing is that this is new behavior and an expanded and more muscular sort of board position than traditionally has been the case as the law was practiced prior to about 10 years ago. In this paper, it's an empirical examination of this fairly recent phenomenon of bankruptcy directors. And that's a term that you coin that won't be found in the bankruptcy code or a state corporate statute. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about why we see bankruptcy directors emerging in these contexts. What are the roles that they play? What are the justifications for their joining a board? Are they commonly used? And importantly, just who are these people as individuals? What sort of people become bankruptcy directors? My co-authors and I have spent a lot of time studying this question. We have some answers. Some of them are a little more tentative than others, but all have some basis of empirical support. When we think about why these directors emerge, one of the reasons we think traditionally corporate law really took a backseat in bankruptcy, which is to say that when a company filed for bankruptcy, the regime of corporate governance that would be used to make the company's important decisions in Chapter 11 was the collaborative adversarial court-driven process that Congress created in Chapter 11, which is to say companies filed for Chapter 11. The board of directors then has its power limited to proposing major decisions to the bankruptcy judge for the judge to approve, which is a real downgrade from the regime that exists outside of bankruptcy. A board of directors makes decisions and judges only review those decisions if they're later challenged and they review the decisions after they're made. In bankruptcy law, the board remains in control of the firm, but they lose the power to make the important decisions without first getting a judge's approval. So traditionally, the board of directors, because this is the world they live in, didn't really have a lot of law that regulated their conduct. Right? Outside of bankruptcy, if a board of directors knows that, for example, you agree to this merger and then you're going to get sued in Delaware Chancery Court, they have to comply with all of the high standards that Delaware corporate law demands of fiduciaries. Inside bankruptcy, if you're the board and you say, we think we should do a merger with some other company, you propose that idea to the judge. The judge says, okay, this is good. So long as you didn't hide information about the merger, the judge's approval then means that you're not going to have subsequent challenges of the board's fiduciary duty in entering into that transaction. So traditionally, corporate law wasn't that important as a regulator of board conduct during a company's Chapter 11. A lot has changed recently. And so one of the changes is that over the past 20 years, Delaware corporate law and federal securities law have both become much more concerned with independent directors making decisions. And companies have developed a playbook where if you want to make a decision that's a big decision for the company, where there's potentially a conflict of interest, what you do is you bring in independent directors onto the board, those independent directors that make the decision, you make sure that decisions are always made by impeccably qualified directors who lack conflicts of interest. And that's just a standard operating procedure. So one way of thinking about the bankruptcy director trends that we identify is that companies have just adapted this playbook to bankruptcy law. So outside of bankruptcy, if you want to do a merger, you make sure that the decision to merge is made by unconflicted independent directors. Because very few boards of directors historically have had just normal directors who also had bankruptcy experience. It makes some sense to add a bankruptcy expert to the board and to let that bankruptcy expert 
make decisions, or at least to add that bankruptcy expert's voice to board deliberations. One of the reasons why we suspect, and we don't have proof of this, although we see bits and pieces that are suggestive, is that companies in learning how to make decisions through independent directors have naturally decided they also want to do the same as they approach bankruptcy. We also think that lawyers play a significant role in promoting this trend. So historically, one of the great strengths of American bankruptcy law is that it provides a flexible platform where there's enough between what Congress has done and what judges have done. They give companies ability to cobble together different pathways through bankruptcy and different tools that can be used to resolve financial distress that lawyers innovate on top of that platform and invent new things that then become very useful and make bankruptcy law more useful to companies that are financially distressed. So a classic example is that 20 years ago, and Ken Ayan and I have a paper on this, debtor and possession financing emerged as an important way through which bankruptcy law gives firms something useful, money to reorganize, and also a method through which firms select transactions to reorganize. Right? So historically, lawyers have brought new innovations into the bankruptcy system that have improved the bankruptcy system and made it more useful for large companies. And traditionally, the trend is that these innovations emerge and then guardrails are placed on those innovations. And we'll talk about guardrails, I think, later on in our conversation. But that's how things work. Given the putative reasons why bankruptcy directors may have emerged, one of your questions was, are they commonly used? And if you look, and we do in the paper, over the past 15 years, what you find is that in the 2000s, bankruptcy directors, or to define that term, you didn't tend to see in people on the board who held themselves out to the bankruptcy court as independent directors. That's not to say that you didn't have people in, let's say, 2006, 2007, 2008, the financial crisis bankruptcies would have qualified as independent under securities laws or independent under the rules of the stock exchange or under any Delaware fiduciary duty analysis. It's just that those independent directors did hold themselves out to the bankruptcy judge as having some sort of distinct legal existence that then was meant to be taken into account in the judge's analysis. That changed in about 2012 when you began to see increasingly a larger proportion of the large companies that file for Chapter 11 pointing to their board after filing and saying, Judge, important decisions are being made here by an independent director. So that's the term that they use. We use the term bankruptcy director. And those bankruptcy directors are making decisions with best interests of the firm in mind, and they have no conflict of interest. They're not here representing any individual party. They're simply here to act on behalf of the firm. And that trend accelerated over the past decade, the 2010s or so, to the point that in the last year of our sample, which I believe was 2019, what we saw was that more than half of the large companies that filed for Chapter 11 had a bankruptcy expert on their board, either immediately prior to filing for bankruptcy or in a minority of cases, they added one after filing for bankruptcy. So this trend starts to look a lot like part of a professionalized bankruptcy process that companies use to navigate financial distress, right? Where if you are a large company that needs to reorganize, the standard practice now, if you're sophisticated, is to add one of these people to the board. And so I think your last question was, who exactly are these people? So there are a number of people who do this, right? So there are a number of people who we see in our sample as having an appointment as a bankruptcy director. But one of the things that is very clear is that there's a small cohort 
generally of former bankruptcy lawyers, investment bankers, and distressed debt traders that have emerged that take these representations and have become professional directors. They specialize in joining the boards of companies that are financial distress, steering them through a bankruptcy process or steering them through an out-of-court restructuring, and then leaving the board, right? And there's a small group of people who we call super repeaters in the paper. I recently debated one of them in a public debate. They're a very sophisticated and extremely intelligent group of people who are experts in this. And their practice, their profession is sitting on the board of large companies that are going through Chapter 11. So thank you for that conceptual introduction to this concept of bankruptcy directors. And I want to get into the empirical piece in a moment, but going back to the conceptual side, what are some of the conflicts that are playing out within a chapter 11 bankruptcy between different players in that process? And where do bankruptcy directors potentially fit into that conflict or set of conflicts? When I describe this trend at a high level, it seems either innocuous or good. Who wouldn't want to have an expert making decisions when a company is making the kind of momentous decisions that one makes when one is restructuring in Chapter 11? Why would that be a bad thing? One of the interesting problems with this trend or potential problems is that in many cases, bankruptcy directors are added to the board by companies that are controlled by private equity sponsors. And one of the first things they do is investigate transactions between the company, which is a portfolio company, and the private equity sponsor. And the kind of background trend here is that as the credit markets have remained incredibly generous to companies over the past decade or so, we had a sort of downturn in credit during the financial crisis. And then we immediately shifted back into boom conditions, which have lasted for more than a decade, I guess, give or take a little bit. Recently, I think things have slowed down some again. But As that trend has been in place, private equity sponsors have become more and more aggressive in transactions with their portfolio companies. And Bob Stark at Brown Rudnick and I have a paper on this where we talk about this broader trend, which we call the era of bankruptcy heart. And what we're getting at here is that once upon a time when a a company that was controlled by a private equity sponsor ran into financial trouble, the sponsor would treat the stress of its portfolio company as an opportunity to look good to the credit markets. So if you're a private equity sponsor, just to use a random one, you're Carlisle, you rely on having banks and investors that finance your leverage buyouts. So when one of your deals goes bad, traditionally, and this is the view up until the 2010s, private equity sponsors would treat the stress of their portfolio companies as a chance to demonstrate good citizenship by running a restructuring that kept the best interests of the creditors in mind because you want those same banks to feel good about you so that you can get them to fund your next deal. The change has been that as credit markets have become more and more generous, sponsors appear to care less and less about their relationships with debt investors, and they become more aggressive in their transactions with portfolio companies. And so they have engaged in transactions, which are referred to euphemistically in the bankruptcy business as liability management transactions, where a lot of the time they're looking to either extend the runway that they have in their investment or to extract value in order to try to get back their principal or to earn some return on the original leverage buyout. A standard fact pattern could be something like you've a company that has been struggling. Let's say it's a struggling retailer. Well, over the course of the three or four years preceding bankruptcy, it paid dividends to the private equity sponsor, even though it was probably insolvent at the time. So when the company files for bankruptcy, 
Traditionally, the creditors would then bring fraudulent transfer actions to try to get some of that money back from the private equity sponsor. And that litigation would be incredibly time intensive. It would take a lot of work. It would often require large settlement payments on account of the sponsor. And bankruptcy directors help with this, which is to say that when companies run into financial distress, they add a bankruptcy director to the board. The bankruptcy director then turns around and investigates all of those dividend paying pre-bankruptcy petition that were made to the private equity sponsor. And the bankruptcy director then looks at those payments, concludes that they should be settled in the eyes of critics, often for not as much money as creditors think. And then boom, the bankruptcy director proposes that settlement to the bankruptcy judge. And the bankruptcy judge is then in a position where you have somebody who holds themselves out as an independent expert purporting to say that they investigated very expensive, difficult claims. These claims ought to be settled for a low number. And that's how the world should look. And so some of the controversy over this practice is that many critics charge the bankruptcy directors are actually private equity deployed cover-up artists, where you put somebody on the board who has the thick leaf of being an independent expert, but they're really working for the sponsor that added them to the board, and that they're there to obstruct the investigation that creditors might make into pre-petition transactions between the private equity sponsor and the portfolio company. So it's a very long-winded answer to say, in summary, that many people think that bankruptcy directors are not, in fact, independent directors. Instead, they have these conflicts of interest that could distort their decision-making and tempt them to act in the best interests of the sponsor. And so in the paper, we refer to something else which we call an auditioning bias. And the basic idea is that if you are a bankruptcy director, you have an inherently lucrative short-term engagement company falls into financial distress, you're added to the board. From there, you go and you do your bankruptcy director thing, you settle the claim, and then the company leaves bankruptcy or reaches an out-of-court restructuring with creditors and you leave the board. If you want to have more of these engagements, you know, because the work of bankruptcy play is at public, you have incentives to make decisions that might get you more of these jobs. And what better decision to make than decisions that are favorable for the universe of private equity sponsors writ large, because then other private equity sponsors will say, hey, this Jared guy, he really got this one big private equity firm out of a tough situation. Maybe he can help us too. So a lot of the controversy has to do with allegations that bankruptcy directors suffer from conflicts of interest. I'd like to turn to the empirical side of this study. What were your research questions going into this? We've talked about the concepts but what were your research questions for the empirical piece? What were some of your approaches to answering those questions? And what were some of your key findings or big ticket findings in the empirical study? So when Kobe Yehud and I went into this project, one of the things we wondered is to what extent this really was an important research question. The three of us were all interested in this question because we'd heard from practitioners that something new was going on in bankruptcy boardrooms, right? Bankruptcy boardrooms, you know, as a bankruptcy scholar, was traditionally something I didn't care very much about because the boardrooms were considered to be backwaters. If you think about corporate law and its obsession with boards, Kobe is a student of my colleague, Lucian Bebchuk, who has been very animated about the topic of independent directors over and Kobe's written a lot of papers on independent directors who just come to this question as well. But traditionally, you didn't think it was this important. Right. You didn't think that the bankruptcy boardrooms and who was on the board of a chapter 11 firm mattered at all. So one of the things we wanted to do was to learn more about just how big this trend was. And is this a real trend? 
So we were all motivated by reports that something new was going on in bankruptcy boardroom that we'd heard from practitioners. And you wondered, right, is this something going on? And there's some high profile anecdotes that, that we talk about in the paper, Nine West, Neiman Marcus, Payless Shoes, and there are several others as well that are these like famous bankruptcy director cases that have taken on an outsized importance in the mind of practitioners. So we wanted to learn to what extent is this a real trend? To what extent is something going on that is worth knowing more about? So in order to do that, we put together a team of research assistants, actually, and I, I was at Hastings at the time, operating between San Francisco and Tel Aviv. So we had a global research team. The sun does not set on the British Empire or on the bankruptcy director's data gathering project. We worked with a team of RAs and we went through all of the court dockets of the companies that had assets or liabilities of more than $250 million that filed for bankruptcy between 2004 and 2019. And we looked at all of the court dockets and we tried to get a sense of exactly what was going on with the board of directors of these companies during their bankruptcy case. So companies entered our sample when they disclosed who was on the board to the bankruptcy judge, which every company is required to do, although some companies didn't honor that obligation. Most did. And then also they needed to have filed the disclosure statements with the bankruptcy judge describing the restructuring transaction and how they had come to that restructuring transaction, which was an important document for us because the disclosure statements allowed us to get a sense of did the company think it was helpful to point to the identity and the qualifications of an independent director that made decisions. So the disclosure statement is a document that's meant to describe the company's financial distress and its proposed restructuring transaction to both the bankruptcy judge and to creditors who then use it and read it and then choose how they're going to vote on the plan. And it's meant to do so in plain English. So to some extent, the bankruptcy director trend is something of a litigation tactic where just like outside of bankruptcy, companies want to have independent people making decisions. Do you want to represent to the judge that you have an independent person making decisions? If you go to the trouble of putting an independent person on the board, you probably want to talk about it. It makes you look like a state-of-the-art firm that's embraced best practices. So we look to see to what extent were we able to identify using the list of 2,000 or so directors or the 2,000 or so directorship, I mean, there were a slightly smaller number of directors and the list of companies that filed for bankruptcy during this period, to what extent did they represent to the bankruptcy court that they had an independent director on the board who was going to be making decisions? And so the first thing we learned is that this trend is way bigger than the high profile examples that had motivated our interest in the research question. There are many more companies with bankruptcy directors than there are companies with bankruptcy directors that investigate claims against insiders. So the high profile examples that had motivated our interest all involve private equity controlled companies where there are pre-bankruptcy suspicious transactions between the sponsor and the portfolio company. And then a bankruptcy director is added to the board, they come in, they do an investigation, and then that's that, right? The claim goes away. We discovered that actually bankruptcy directors after being appointed and the trend explodes in 2012, only investigate claims against insiders in a little less than half of their engagement. Bankruptcy directors are just increasingly calling the shots when large companies fall into financial distress. And this represents something of a innovation and a shift in the way that companies prepare for a bankruptcy proceeding. You know, if you're a well-run company with great counsel, you bring somebody onto your board who's then going to run the restructuring proceeding. So that was our first finding. But our second major finding is that you can't do a kind of 
controlled, the quasi-experimental research design in this context, where you could try to isolate the effect of having a bankruptcy director on important bankruptcy outcomes. Like that's not possible because bankruptcy directors are not randomly assigned to boards. So some of the traditional tools that empiricists use, boards available to us because everything in the bankruptcy world is endogenous. You only add one of these people to the board if you think one of these people will be helpful. Although if you look at the trend line, it sure looks like in a couple of years, nearly every company that files for chapter 11 will have an independent director on the board making decisions. But we were interested for the period that we were studying to get a sense of the relationship between the presence of a bankruptcy director and important bankruptcy outcome variables. And again, to qualify this, we don't think that we can make a causal claim. I could tell you for sure that a bankruptcy director caused, for example, relatively worse outcomes for creditors because it's endogenous, right? It's the bankruptcy director just may have been there in a case that was always going to yield relatively worse outcomes for creditors. But what we found is that when you compared the bucket of firms with bankruptcy directors, to the bucket without bankruptcy directors, controlling for some sort of straightforward firm financial characteristics, capital structure variables, bankruptcy outcome variables. What you can see is that firms with bankruptcy directors pay relatively smaller recoveries to unsecured creditors than the firms without. Again, it's not a causal claim, right? So we can't say for sure that bankruptcy directors are causing these relatively worse outcomes for creditors. But this paper is exploratory, where we want to learn more about how real is this trend? Are we documenting a new important empirical phenomenon? And clearly the answer to that is yes. And what we can say after doing this analysis, two big takeaways. One, bankruptcy directors are big, they're important. This is a real trend that's changing the way that bankruptcy laws practice and judges need to think about this. And two, we can say that one of the reasons that this has probably become so controversial in the bankruptcy world is that in many cases, the companies that have bankruptcy directors are also paying relatively worse unsecured creditor recoveries. They're paying less to unsecured creditors at the end of the bankruptcy process than the companies without bankruptcy directors. So if you're like a bankruptcy lawyer or a distressed ad investor who's constantly investing in companies, representing companies, you're in many deals. It's probably fairly noticeable to you and visible that if you've got a bankruptcy director making the calls, unsecured creditors aren't going to do as well. And so I think what our empirical results reveal is just how big this phenomenon turns out to be and why it's so controversial. You say that lawyers representing, say, unsecured creditors committees or bankruptcy judges need to pay attention to this phenomenon. If a bankruptcy judge or a counsel for an unsecured creditors committee reads this article, what takeaways should they draw from it? If they were to come to you and say, what should we do with this? How can we react or think about this in the context of our jobs? What would you suggest to them? And have you had some conversations or reactions from anybody in the bankruptcy judge camp or the unsecured creditor camp? You mentioned earlier in the interview that you had a, a debate with one of the super repeater directors, but what sort of feedback have you gotten from the bankruptcy community on this? I think it is fair to say that the study has gotten a lot of attention from the bankruptcy world, from practitioners, from press that covers bankruptcy and from everyone else. And so one of the reasons we wanted to do this, right, is that the study really represents, for at least from our perspective, service to the bench and service to the bar, where there's something new that's going on. And I don't think before the study, anybody really understood just how big the trend was. I think people saw individual trees. But the study tells us what the force looks like. Congress, in creating the bankruptcy system, created incredibly rigorous conflict of interest rules 
that govern such questions as who may represent as an attorney a debtor reorganizing in Chapter 11. There are procedures that are in place. There's a body of case law that govern conflicts of interest that might tempt attorneys to make decisions that are not in the best interest of their clients. And so there's a lot of disclosure that's required. And there are well-accepted practices like bringing conflicts counsel on board that law firms and companies use to navigate those conflict of interest rules. So bankruptcy directors slip between the statutory cracks where there's currently no body of conflict of interest law that governs who can sit on the board of a Chapter 11 debtor, and how should they disclose those conflicts to the court? And then third, how should the judge treat their decisions? In general, we would suggest, and we do in the paper, that judges need to start thinking harder about this. And just as lawyers historically have innovated and created new procedures and processes that have made the bankruptcy system more useful, judges traditionally have imposed guardrails. So we suggest that judges ought to impose guardrails on this practice. In the paper, we suggest that at the very beginning of the bankruptcy process, if you want to put a director on the board and then you want to say to the judge, judge, this is an independent director and we want you to do the Delaware law thing, where if a decision is made by an independent director, you should defer to the qualifications and disinterestedness of the director. You can make that claim but you should have to substantiate it. So hold a hearing at the beginning of the bankruptcy process, disclose all the conflicts around that directors, and then get a sense as to whether or not creditors as a whole agree that this person is independent and want them to be an independent fiduciary whose decisions are treated with deference. And we suggest that the judge should look around the room and creditors are always well represented in bankruptcy proceedings. And if creditors seem to unanimously agree that this director is independent and ought to be able to make decisions that are worthy of judicial deference, then the judge should do that. But otherwise, the conflicts of interest have now been disclosed and the judge should treat the independent director as just a normal bankruptcy professional, which is to say somebody who's partisan, who has an interest on behalf of their clients and whose decisions should be treated with the normal probing review that bankruptcy judges have traditionally used to inquire into business decisions made by companies that are reorganizing in Chapter 11. We would suggest that the study teaches us that this is a big trend and judges need to do more. There have been a number of reactions from practitioners. One of them was from Howard Brownstein, who's an independent consultant, and Ken Rosen, who's at Lowenstein Sandler, and who's an eminent bankruptcy lawyer. And they suggested that disclosure alone is fine and you don't need to have the judge look around the room to decide whether or not this person's an independent director. But that's an opinion. It's a view. We definitely think that judges should do more than that. But at the very least, we think that a good takeaway from this project is judges need to think harder about what's going on. Now that judges know what's going on, thanks to this project, more so than they did before, and then consider whether or not the law needs to respond. One of the motivating reasons that we went into this study is we were interested in what had happened in the Neiman Marcus bankruptcy, where two bankruptcy directors were added to the board. They settled claims against the private equity sponsor that had just hired them. It was enormously controversial in the bankruptcy world. And there was a colloquy in court where Judge Jones, who's a wonderfully sophisticated commercial law judge who sits in the bankruptcy court in Houston, Judge Jones asked the lawyer for the creditors, what do you think I should be doing about these bankruptcy directors? And I think our study provides some answers. You also asked, what reaction have we gotten from the various camps that are out there? So I can tell you that the bankruptcy directors of the world, I think they generally agree that they're an important part of chapter 11, and this is a shift in the marketplace. After all, a lot of them are earning their livings doing, and in some ways, like the paper, it's almost like fan fiction saying, wow, this new thing is happening. There's this new group of people out there who are really important. 
And there's this new seat in the bankruptcy world. The debtor's lawyers, you've creditor's lawyers, and you have these bankruptcy directors. I think they would tell you that finding in the paper that there's this negative relationship between the presence of a bankruptcy director and bankruptcy outcomes is completely misleading because they're only brought on to the companies that are completely on fire. So of course, they're relatively worse bankruptcy outcomes. We don't disagree with that. I think we tried to write this paper to say that we're doing an exploratory analysis, trying to identify a new trend and then to pick up on some of the ramifications of the trend. And we think that the negative relationship observed in the paper simply helps us to understand what's going on, what types of firms are using these directors, and what are some of the associations that are probably visible to market participants. We don't disagree. So I think that on average, we largely don't disagree with most of the reactions to the paper, which is some people think our policy recommendations go too far. That's an opinion that's very valid. We think there's definitely room for discussion on this. And then there's a group of attorneys out there who represent creditors and as well as distressed debt investors who strongly agree with the paper. They think we didn't go far enough. They think that bankruptcy directors are destroying the integrity of chapter 11, but we wouldn't go as far as they would. So a lot of reactions, and I think we go in different directions. Another place that this paper has gotten some tractions is in the Hall of Congress. Senator Warren has a bill out there that would do a number of things to try to regulate private equity. And one of the things would be to enact a version of our policy proposal, which is it would take away from boards of directors of chapter 11 debtors power to settle claims against insiders which would deal with a lot of the con where bankruptcy directors are appointed and then immediately settle claims against the sponsors who just brought them on board. And it would also give a creditors committee the power to compel an examination of the conflicts of interest and credentials of the bankruptcy directors, which is something they probably can cobble together from existing statutory authorities, but would be bolstered by that proposal. There's been reactions from industry. There's been reactions from Congress. This paper has really inspired a lot of controversy, which is great. And it's exciting because it's also, it means that the world is beginning to react to this real innovation in the way that bankruptcy law is practiced. Are there any takeaways or open questions you'd like listeners to think about? Yeah, I think the biggest set of questions that emerges from this study is it's not a new controversy for corporate law, and it's really not a new controversy for bankruptcy law either, which is there's always going to be a tension between expertise and having repeat players making decisions and conflicts of interest. So if you have a small community here in Silicon Valley, where I used to live before I recently moved to Boston, there's a small venture capital world, and that's viewed as a key strength of Silicon Valley. And it is, right? It's great that you have all these people who work on every deal, right? These venture capital firms like Andreessen Horowitz that are just, they're everywhere. And Small communities can develop expertise, but they can also create conflicts of interest. One of the great strengths of the American economy is that because it's so big, we can have hyper-specialized small communities that's, that focus on very narrow sets of transactions and narrow sets of business opportunities and execute them. And so what we're studying in this paper is really a bankruptcy law version of the same conflicts and set of questions that we see all over the place, which is you have a small group of people and there are conflicts of interest. And those conflicts of interest can create questions about the integrity of processes. And so what we pick up on in this paper is just one example of this broader set of questions. I remember reading an interview and I've never been able to find this article since, but it was one of the Detroit newspapers. And I grew up in Detroit and I think I was only in high school at the time. And this was somebody describing being in bankruptcy. And it was the CEO of a company in bankruptcy. And they said, well, bankruptcy you have the lawyers and the judges, and they all know each other. And the company's just at a severe disadvantage. 
And I think that's an overstated notion, but there's an element of that does ring true. And this paper brings to the forefront yet another set of the conflicts of interest that exist by having such a sort of hyper-specialized and small, relatively small bankruptcy bar where everyone knows each other. And I think on average, having in a group of expert bankruptcy lawyers, a group of expert bankruptcy investment bankers, and the fact that they know each other and they're accountable to each other through repeat interactions is way more beneficial than any of the downsides. So I think the strength of our restructuring community is one of the core reasons why the American economy is so successful, really good at redeploying assets or really good at resolving financial distress and avoiding zombie firms. But it does create questions and Congress put a set a bunch of federal judges in place to create guardrails for the practices the companies deploy when they're in financial distress. So we think this paper identifies an evolution in bankruptcy practice and suggests a way forward in terms of enacting guardrails. And so that's the key takeaway. It was a lot of fun to work on. It's been a lot of fun to talk about with market participants and people in industry since we wrote it. And there certainly has been pushback and the pushback has been always very good faith and well-intended and thoughtful, and we've learned a lot from it. And there's a lot more to be done on this topic, and Kobe, Ehud, and I may return to it at some point. I think for the moment, we've said what we want to say about this, which is something new is going on in the bankruptcy world. This sort of practice of independent directors has migrated from corporate law into bankruptcy law, and we need to think about that. And I think that's where I'll leave things. Our guest today has been Jared Elias, professor at Harvard Law School. We've discussed his article, The Rise of Bankruptcy Directors, which is forthcoming in the Southern California Law Review. The article is co-authored with Ehud Kumar and Kobe Castile, professors of law at Tel Aviv University. I'll link to the article in the show notes for the episode. Jared, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings.